Welcome to Dr. Cheryl's Pod Couch, where we talk about all things mental health and parenting. Today, I am very happy to have on Rebecca Fogg. In 2008, Rebecca Fogg walked away from her New York life and successful career in financial services to move to London, where she co-founded the Institute of Pre-Hospital Care at London's Air Ambulance and continues to work, write, and learn Scottish fiddle. Beautiful trauma, an explosion, an obsession, and a new lease on life is her first book, and she's here to talk to us about it today. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. I'm really thrilled to be here. I am thrilled to have you on. And should I call you, do you go by Becca? Yeah, call me Becca. Okay, great. I will call you Becca. So Becca, I have to tell you, I was really enthralled by reading this book. I read it on an airplane. This is one of these interviews where it's, this is a good story, rich with life lessons and really a lot to share, just like it says, in terms of science, but in terms of being human, in terms of resilience. And so I really just want you um, to start by telling us the story, especially for those who have not yet read Mm -hmm. Beautiful Trauma. Um, I'm just going to lead you in saying that in the beginning, you have an author's note. And in it, you talk about the following is an account of how I coped with the experience by studying the science behind it and accepting love and help in many forms from many people. And that really resonated with me. I think that's at the core of what I believe uh, mental health is really about. And so I want you to kind of just start with your story and we'll just go from there. Okay. So the story started in the middle of the night in January, 2006. I had stayed awake uh, until about 2.30 in the morning working on a presentation for work, which was not unusual for me. And I was finally ready to go to bed, turned on the bathroom faucet to brush my teeth and nothing but air came out. Thought that was really strange and wondered if all the plumbing was messed up also. So I leaned over to flush the toilet and it exploded. And a shard of porcelain flew right through the inside of my right wrist, cutting it to the bone, essentially partially amputating my hand. I was bleeding profusely and I was alone in the apartment and I had to rescue myself. So I say, mm, I had to decide whether to stop the bleeding or call an ambulance first. And I decided I wasn't sure how to stop the bleeding and I had better get an ambulance on the way. So I called 911. Then I stopped the bleeding with some difficulty, woke up the neighbors and uh, the paramedics took me to the wonderful Bellevue Hospital in New York City, where the next day uh, I had uh, extensive surgery to reconnect everything that they could. So a partial replant surgery. And um, I guess a bit of a spoiler alert today, I have this wonderful, beautiful tool on my hands. It's actually quite impaired, but it is highly functional. So I'm, I'm very, very lucky in that respect. But it was a grueling recovery and it was painful in every sense of the word. Yeah. So I will tell people listening that when you, you know, of course, you've probably told this story now thousands of times. But when you write the story, it's gripping. There was so much empathy that was pouring out of me as you were making these decisions, like these quick decisions or talking about your neighbors or worrying about you were worried about the secondary trauma they were going through by witnessing what you were going through. And you had the wherewithal to kind of notice that and write about that. 
you also talk about your doctor and that process. And I, and I'm mentioning that because I'm kind of going along the process. There's the trauma that occurs in your apartment. Then you get to a hospital. There are all these interesting thoughts you have about a doctor. And I'm mentioning that because I think a lot of times, particularly women, they really have a hard time advocating for themselves or knowing the right questions to ask, or just maybe feeling like, well, they're the expert and, and they should lead this. So can you talk about what you've learned? Because I know this this whole thing became your obsession and your new lease on life, but a lot of it has to do mm-hmm. with also the medical system. So can yeah. you talk about that piece? One of the most um, fascinating and important things that I learned in my research of the science, and you know that started with anatomy and then it went on to surgery and the history of surgery and neuroscience and psychology, was the biopsychosocial environmental model of health, meaning our health status isn't just determined by genetics or our behavior. It is determined by the world around us. And I think, you know, that is something that is really important to bear in mind when you walk into a a medical system and a healthcare situation. You know, there is there are things they can do. There are things that they cannot do. They are faced with patients who, you know, for instance, I have, I had health insurance. So I was going to be able to take time off from work and I was going to be able to do my occupational therapy. But, um, they will often be working with people, particularly at Bellevue. They'll be working with people who do not have, you know, these very basic human rights of, you know, enough food, a, a roof over their head, health insurance, time to recover from their, you know, to recover properly. And so they have, they are working with a very, very broad and diverse population with a lot of different socioeconomic backgrounds and challenges. And so when it comes to interacting with the health system, you know, everybody needs an advocate. Uh, At the time, you know, I find it really ironic and it was very sort of frustrating and demoralizing at the time to recognize that life was demanding the absolute most of me at the time that I had the absolute least to give. And so, you know, back to the biopsychosocial model, well, my job was strategy and financial services, you know, and my sister had a similar job. So we walk into that environment And, you know, we have a wealth of professional experience and training and a sense of we're going to be respectful about how we answer our questions, but we should have answers. And not everybody walks into those situations with that kind of confidence and that sense of, you know, deserving the answers as everybody does. So I think that is one strong component of, you know, that we walked in and we felt that we felt capable of asking questions. We were still overwhelmed and, but that's where my sister came in. You know, she's calling the GP and all of that sort of thing. But the other, the other fact, so part of the factor at play was what we walked in, the life experience we walked in with where, you know, our whole job was asking questions, trying to get information to make good decisions. And that was really helpful. But also, um, I, remain very grateful to all of the staff that I met from the porters to the paramedics to the, you know, OTs and the doctors and, you know, at all of the different levels, because they were all really encouraging me to ask questions in explicit and implicit ways. So that is something that a health system can do. You know, no matter how little time you have, you still have the chance, you know, you still have the time to encourage someone, you know, to ask them if they understood And that's what my doctors did, you know, and they said, this is a lot. Do you want me to tell you more or do you want to just try to absorb that for now? 
And probably for the first time in my life, I said, yeah, please don't tell me anything more. I, I, I need to digest this. Um, and then when I was ready for more, I could go back. Um, and then it got to this fun point where, you know, after the major crisis was over, the surgery had gone well, but we're doing loads of OT and loads of checkups. I'm in, in the hospital all the time. And by this point, I'm learning a lot about the science because it's helping me get through. It's giving me that sense of purpose. And I'm also in love with it. I'm fascinated by it. And there's this bond developing between me and my medical team, because like when I walk through the door, they know that I know what they did. And I know how hard they trained for it. And I know how hard it was. And I'm excited by it, too. And so we get to the point where, you know, they're pulling medical books off the shelf and saying, all right, get that list out. We know you have one. So I, you know, when people often ask me, you know, what can trauma patients do for themselves? And my first my first my first response is often, could we ask what uh, what other people could do for trauma patients first? Because they're really overwhelmed. But the second thing that I will say is you know, don't be afraid to vigorously question your medical professionals. Everybody deserves all the information that they need to feel comfortable with the next step. It doesn't mean you won't be afraid. It doesn't mean you won't be nervous. Doesn't mean you'll understand everything, but you have a right to the information that's going to make you feel as comfortable as possible with the next step and to help make decisions. And the doctors and the healthcare professionals want you to have that too. Yeah, I really want to underscore that because being a healthcare professional myself, when I have my clients or patients and they ask a lot of questions, it helps me even be more prepared, more ready because I know that it's coming from them. And I think it's really appropriate, especially in the world today of mental health. People just feel so happy that maybe someone even returned their phone call or that they're talking to somebody, they don't feel empowered to ask mm -hmm. questions. And so whether it's, you know, a traumatic event like yours, or it's just trying to find the right doctor for yourself or for your child, mm -hmm. I really think that that's a really empowering and important message. Ask questions, mm -hmm. ask a lot of questions. You mm -hmm. get a good sense too about, sometimes I say, it can even be less about what they actually answer. It's the way in which they answer you. Mm -hmm. It's the mm -hmm. way they, which they're willing to um, give you that time or say, gosh, unfortunately, right now I'm out of time. Let's find another time. Let mm -hmm. me make some more time for you. So I think that that says a lot when you're trying to get, whether it's, you know, urgent care or mm -hmm. it's just preventative care or ongoing care. So um, I love that that comes really comes to light in your story. Um, that piece. The other piece that you just mentioned, but that I had, um, I was very teary eyed with the relationship between you and your sister. I thought it was really touching and moving. And I had, a, I had different feelings about it, everything from like how lovely it was between the two of you and also <laughs> how people who don't have a relationship like that, what do they do? and who's mm -hmm. their advocate and who's their mm -hmm. support system. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's one of the things we know, I'm sure that you know, as well as a, a particular factor of health and predictor of longevity of life is connection with others. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about the connection with your sister and what it meant to your whole journey um, with this traumatic event that happened to you? I'm really glad that you honed in on that because I actually now, you know, 17 years down the road, I really think that this whole book is about connection, actually. 
So now I live in London and my sister lives in Manhattan. So, you know, the next health emergency, she's probably not going to be the one, right? We, you know, we're very close. We're very different. We're, we're very similar. You know, she's phenomenal in emergency. I call her like, she's like the first inning player. There's some people who are first inning players and some people are second inning players. And she's the one who came in and she was like holding my hand from the beginning, even though I have like this other hand that's laid out on a table, like seriously, a half card piece of meat. And, um, you know, she's nauseated and she's standing there. She's not letting go except when she needs to make a call and she's, you know, Googling my doctor's license, you know, the surgeon's licenses and all this kind of stuff, you know, she's telling my, uh, you know, my, my workplace, all of this stuff, you know, she managed everything for about 10 days and then she was maxed out and she had given everything she could possibly give. She had a really demanding job that she had to manage as well. And I had to move on. And at that point, my mother could help me for a while. And then she had to move on. And so, you know, what this is, is just another example of, you know, this looming question for, you know, Western medical systems um, and, and societies, which is what really is a social safety net? Societally now, we rely far too heavily on the nuclear family. And usually that means the woman. It's the wife, the daughter, the mother, who are already juggling a lot of other things. You know, in my experience, none of those supports were there sustainable long-term. And my friend stepped in. I actually hadn't even, you know, first of all, I'm really muddled because I'm taking massive doses of painkillers and, uh, you know, there's shock and trauma and I'm exhausted. So I'm not thinking especially resourcefully at the time, but I also, you know, have drunk the American Kool-Aid of independence is everything and you shouldn't need help. <laughs> And yet I was completely incapacitated, you know, um, and a, uh, my therapist at the time suggested that I ask my friends to put together a visiting schedule. And, um, I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to have to do that. You know, there's, there's no in-resident helper. So I, you know, emailed my BFF, Jen, who everybody who reads the book will get to know very well. I mean, she was just like magic. You know, she said, give me a list, give me all your emails, you know? And so I sent her a whole bunch of emails. And within a couple of days, she came back and she said, so many, want, so many people want to help that I can't even put them all on the schedule because you don't want to see people every day. You know, when I had originally maybe had a bit of qualms about I don't know what, what stops us from doing this, but you know, you feel like you should be able to handle it alone or you're worried that other people are going through too much of their own stuff. You know, it's a busy, busy, busy world. You know, at that time, everybody was in their thirties with like kids under five at home and commuting to jobs because this is pre COVID and you know, what's important enough. You know, when do you just grab the wheel and say, help, I need help. And this was the moment. And you know, my friend Jen said, Becca, would you hesitate to help any of them? And I'm like, well, no, but and she's like, right. And she said, people also want to help. Why would you deprive them of that? And so I had this wonderful parade of people coming through, you know, some people that were really good friends that I knew well, and some of them were like people I had just met at a party, you know, and I didn't even know who was showing up. I was like, I don't need to know the Rhoda. It's like someone would knock on the door and I'd be like, oh, hey, you know, Sue. And she'd come into, you know, I brought you this to eat. What do you want me to do? I'm like, ugh, can you take out the garbage? Can you count my pills? Can you just sit and talk? Or, you know, um, I might cry. Is that all right? You know? <laughs> You know, that was that was amazing. The hard part about it is maybe this is the nature of trauma. Maybe this is just the nature of any adversity. But, you know, it never quite felt like enough. 
because uncertainty is scary. So it was enough because I had what I needed and I got through, but I think there's just something inherent in, you know, in trauma, in medical catastrophe, you know, or in those just difficult and certain moments of life where it's still lonely. It's still scary. You know, nobody can hug you and make it all go away. But in terms of practical support and love, people were really happy to rally and they needed to rally. And along the lines of my messages for like, what can we do with people going through adversity in our lives? It's like, you know, you don't need to be super close to them. You could be a neighbor, a colleague, etc. Think about their practical needs, whatever it is, even if they have a whole family at home, they have practical needs. The people around them are stretched thin. You know, they're probably affected by the trauma as well. What can you take off their plate? Yeah, I love um, everything you're saying, but I, I, I really want to underscore what that piece about you don't even have to be really close. I think that, you know, one of the things I recall yeah. is, I had my daughter on November 1st and the Rockies had made it to the World Series. And um, <laughs> so anyway, I had met people in a box um, or maybe it was the playoffs. It might have been the playoffs. But anyway, um, I met people in in this area that we were watching the game and I was it was a weekend and I had her on a Tuesday. So it was three days, I think, until I gave birth. And um, I met these this nice couple and. Uh, I think they had a toddler. This was going to be my first. And we figured out that we lived, you know, two blocks from each other. And so about a week after I had my baby, like they came over, you know, we, they brought dinner and we had this night and I've never talked to them again. <laughs> the reason why I'm bringing that up is because they just said really like in charge, like we've been through this, you're going to want a meal and we don't just want to drop it off. We want to spend a night with you. We want to keep reminding oh, lovely. you. It was yeah. lovely. And like I said, I haven't seen them since. It's not the point. The point is that it was a vulnerable time for me. Not that mm -hmm. it, anything traumatic happened, but it was a C-section. And it was nice to have company. Mm -hmm. It was nice to have not just the meal dropped off, but actually like, yes, join us. Um, I remember mm -hmm. it was a, a, like a totally lovely night. And so that's one of the things I think people think about, well, we should be really close or I should have some yes. big important mm -hmm. meal to drop off or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. And, and um, you know, unfortunately with having so many people in our lives at this stage now go through things like cancer or a car accident and you don't, sometimes you just have to show up. Sometimes you literally mm -hmm. just have to show up. You might just be... Mm -hmm you yourself and that's it. And I think that there, there was a lot of that. You're right. Your book is very much about connection and resilience and sort of determination. I think it's important for people to remember that you, you don't have to have the answers. You don't have to know yeah. what they like. And if they have an allergy or something, kind of just mm -hmm. show up and mm -hmm. do the best that you can. It goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah. And what I would add to that as well is you don't have to be able to solve the whole problem and you don't have to be there for the whole game. So when I say first inning players, second inning players, you know, it's, it's still astonishing to me that we expect, you know, a spouse or a child to provide a hundred percent of, you know, the care in the situation of that, you know, we're not all good in all good kind, you know, all kinds of situations. And we all have different skills. We have different rhythms and patterns in our lives. And so that family that shows up for that, you know, brings you that one dinner. Oh my God, that's great. They gave you everything you need in that moment. They don't have to do that every single week. You know, that doesn't have to be a barrier. So, 
you know, um, I think that's another reason, you know, every once in a while, like I would think, you know, well, I, I can't really pitch in for this person over the long term. And that might hold me back from actually doing something small that I could on a week that I was free, you know. So um, it's it's thinking about anything you can do is going to help, even if it's just looking them in the eye, smiling, giving them the hug and just saying, I'm thinking of you. Absolutely. So I know there's there's so much more that we could talk about, but I, I'm wondering, you there's three, uh, I'm sure, important parts of your subtitle um, for Beautiful mm-hmm. Trauma, an explosion. So you talked about the actual physical explosion, an obsession. I think you allude to the science, right? You got yeah. so into the science yeah. and surgery and history, and um, I love that. Can you end today by talking to me, really, about the new lease on life that you got? You know, there was the very clear situation that, you know, this was my second life. If I hadn't died, I would have been injured to the point of something. Um, I could have had organ failure. I could have had, you know, I wouldn't have been discovered for a while. You know, it's very clear that that this was a second life in one way or the other. So, you know, there's that sense. But knowing this, you know, I don't live every day as if it's the last, you know, I think it's human nature. We start to take things for granted sometimes. But I did have this very clear sense of, okay, reset. Do I want to keep going exactly the way I've been going? And the answer was no. You know, there were things I hadn't done yet that I wanted to do. There were uh, things that weren't working for me that I wanted to change. And that didn't happen all at once. But um, I have a friend who has an expression. She says, you know how we say I'm going to do that someday? Well, someday is now. (laughs) And so I I very much had this, well, someday is now um, mentality. And, you know, that ultimately caused me to move to London and to shift my work from financial services to healthcare. Uh, And I think it also, you know, I know it also made me decide to write this book. But I keep learning. Uh, and as I do my best to explain in the book, there's, there's trauma in a sense of, you know, PTSD and, um, you know, life disrupting mental health. But if you don't have that or you've gotten over that and you're in the situation, you know, where you've lived through something really, really difficult, it's not that it stops affecting you. You know, you integrate it into your life. So it doesn't, it's not necessarily a negative influence, but it's an influence. And so, I continue to integrate it into my life and how I think about, you know, how I think about life's uncertainty. There's nothing that says that, you know, something difficult won't happen again. There will be bereavements. There will be sadness. There will be despair. So I would say, you know, the new lease on life is as much a perspective on how to think about the possibility of beauty and joy coexisting with the human condition which is adversity. Um, so, you know, the new lease on life is literally a second life and also a new perspective that I think has helped me become more accepting of the realities of life and also reducing friction and resistance that may have kept me from, from recognizing some of the joy and the beauty too. I love that. I think that was really well said. I want to encourage anybody who's listening Uh, Many of us have, you know, gone through traumatic events. And uh, a lot of times what people tend to do is compare theirs. Well, it was mine was worse or theirs was worse or mine's so little or does that even count? There's so much of that. Um, I think this is, you know, by you sharing your story, it just gives sort of some hope and inspiration and, and reality 
um, for people. And what I would say is I just think it adds a more compassionate, empathetic viewpoints of just being human. Anybody who could just use a little dose of, yeah, I, I want to dose myself up with some more empathy or, you know, a new perspective um, can get a lot out of your book. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, thank you for being on. And it was wonderful. I, yeah, I loved uh, talking to you. Again, the book is Beautiful Trauma, an Explosion, an Obsession, and a New Lease on Life by Rebecca Fogg. And um, if you've enjoyed this conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe. Every single review is helpful. And thank you again, Becca, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you.